That's pretty much a normal intro for me on a Sunday morning. So I'm glad, glad we could bring a little bit of high school in here. Uh, quite honestly, I said this last night and I mean it. I think probably our best move right now is to have the Afrizo concert now. And if you want to come back for the sermon at 7, I'll be in the chapel. All right? But you're stuck with me. I just want to point out something before we jump in, that this is a glorious morning. I am thankful for the opportunity to be here. And we have our high school students here. Would you guys just throw your hands in the air? And then... And after service, go greet a high school student appropriately. All right? It would be great. Well, it is good to be here. It's been a wild six weeks in the life of uh, the family at Matisich. We uh, are proud parents of a six-week-old baby boy, and I've got a picture of him for you, and I tried to get a very accurate picture of what he's like. (laughs) This is Russell William Matisich, and uh, we are so thankful to God for his uh, birth. And uh, so we've got two sons now. I'm living the dream of a three-year-old Henry and a six-week-old Russell, Hank and Russ, strong, masculine names. Huss and, Russ and Hank Matisich, we're trying to make them linemen, I think. So uh, it'll be good. And, uh, and we're uh, super thankful. Uh, I have to say, the first Sunday after Russell was born, uh, we had just gotten home from the hospital. So Saturday night was our first night home. It was the first night with Henry, our three-year-old, and it was a very difficult night. Henry was waking up all night, and so was Russell. And I just needed to get Henry out of the house. And so I decided I'd come to church. That's what you do, right? Just bring the kid and then I could get out of the house. So, and I remembered it was the baptism Sunday when some of our high school students were being baptized. So I brought Henry into the worship center, standing over there. And, uh, and some of you came to greet me and thank me for the birth of our son. And you might have noticed me just crying because people come, how's everything going? I'm like, it's really hard. And I just started, I just started crying. John Lewis comes up to me, goes, this too will pass, Jeff. And Nancy Stiles comes up to me, she goes, how about I take Henry home and you go take a nap in your office? I said, that sounds great. So that's what I did. I am so thankful for this church family. And, and when Russell was three weeks old, I started feeling a little pain in, uh, on the side, and I actually had an appendectomy as well. So kind of a, a weird six weeks, also a very surreal experience to be wheeled to surgery at the hospital and calling my wife, Jenny, and saying, I guess I'll call you when I wake up. Uh, she couldn't be there. We have a three-week-old. So all I have to say is uh, God is good, and it was actually during the recovery and being in the hospital of that appendectomy that I was able to sit with this text that we'll be hearing And it is a difficult text. Uh, I'll just warn you now. There's nothing easy about the words of Jesus that we'll look at this morning. But I will say this. As I've lived with this verse, as it has worked in my life and marinated in my mind and my soul, there have been a few things that have emerged, a few things that I want to share with you this morning that I believe uh, God wants to share with all of us. Will you pray with me? God, we are grateful for this day for the opportunity to live, the opportunity to breathe, the opportunity to be your sons and daughters. God, we would pray today that we would honor you. We pray that in this space, in this place, that we would open up our minds and our hearts to you and your word and that you would speak to us. God, I pray for myself and for this family that there be nothing routine about this morning way there hasn't been so far, God, that you would show up in new ways in our life, that we would hear a new word from you, and that as we leave this place, we would live a different life, 
It's in your name that we pray. Amen. If you have your scriptures, you can reopen up to Matthew chapter 5, where we've been for a while as a family. And um, again, I'll read this uh, for you. It says, you have heard it said, starting in verse 43, chapter 5 of Matthew. You have heard it said that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. I have three observations on this text, and the first one starts in verse 43, when it says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. If you've been paying attention or you're familiar with this or if you want to look at it, you know that in the fifth chapter of Matthew, Jesus often starts a section with, you have heard that it was said. In fact, this time we hear it as the sixth time that he's used it in chapter five. But this sixth time is a little bit different than the previous five times. Every time Jesus says in, the, in this section of teaching before where he says, you have heard that it was said, he is, has, a, has a statement and it's a direct reference to a teaching or to some scripture in the Torah, in the Pentateuch, in the first five books of the Bible. So for instance, in verse 21, if you want to look there, we see that you have heard that it was said to people long ago, do not murder. That's a reference, direct reference to Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments. In verse 27, you have heard that it was said, Speaking about adultery, again, referencing Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments. In verse 31, when he's speaking about divorce, it's a direct reference to Deuteronomy 24. Verse 33, when he's speaking about oaths, it's not as direct, but there's several places in, the, in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. We can see that, that quotation and where it's coming from. And in verse 38, revenge, what we heard about last week, there's references directly to Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. There's a shift that is happening in this section of Scripture because what Jesus is referencing is not found in the Torah. It's not just Jesus making commentary and redeeming and renewing and talking about teaching and what's going to be different, how he's bringing some restoration to it. He's now making some comments, not just about the Scriptures, but he's making comments about what was accepted popular thinking. He's making comments about philosophy He's talking to an audience that is living out an ethic and a narrative that says it's actually okay to love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That was accepted. That there would be situations and moments where it would be actually okay to hate your enemy. For the listeners of Jesus, there were probably two kinds of enemies that were common where it was just accepted and okay to hate. There was personal enemies and there were corporate enemies. There's probably people who had some kind of trouble with one another. Uh-huh. And, and, and you could have personal animosity towards somebody. And, and in that culture, you would know that you had some animosity with somebody because based on public greetings, they were a big deal. And that's why this greeting message, this greeting thing we'll hear later makes so much sense in context. You know, in our day, you know, sometimes we wonder if we've offended somebody. 
Maybe we stop getting Christmas cards from somebody. I, there's been a couple times where I'll sit with Jenny and I'll just wonder, did, did we do something? Because we haven't heard from those people in a while. Uh, you know, we haven't gotten a Christmas card. Or did, are, we, are we okay? You know, in our culture, it's a little more nebulous. A little, but in this culture, it would be known and it would be, it would be public for everybody to see. In our greeting time here at church, if you ignored somebody or you didn't greet somebody or you missed somebody, then it would be clear that this was somebody who has offended you, somebody who has hurt you, somebody who has, uh, has a problem with you, an enemy, a personal enemy. But also, not just personal enemies were part of this context, but corporate enemies. That it was okay to hate people who were a threat to Israel, their national security. So bordering countries or bordering powers that would threaten the livelihood and the safety of Israel, it would be okay within that context to look at those people and not just be bothered by them, but to hate them. Or if there was an outside group of people who were threatening the moral fabric of, of, your, of, how, we, of how your community lived, if they lived so differently that it was okay to express hatred towards them. It's important to remember that the biblical narrative never speaks about hating enemies. That Jesus, that, that from the beginning of Scripture throughout, there's this idea that when it comes to the other, those that are different than us, that we're to love them, we're to set our crops aside. There is some definite hate language, especially in the Psalms, right? If, you're, if you read the Psalms, you'll read where we hear the psalmist writing about their disgust for their enemies and, and, and these threats and these kinds of things that only reinforce the context that we're talking about. But it's really important to remember when we read the Psalms, we're reading a type of biblical literature that's human beings expressing to God what it's like to live in his world. The human is the main author of that. So it's wisdom literature. So we shouldn't be surprised that part of being human, even in the Psalms, are people wrestling with people are, your, are a threat to you or people have offended you or people hurt you or people scare you, that you will have ill feeling toward them. It, it's in the Psalms. It's in the context that Jesus is speaking about. And I guarantee you it's still in our context today in this room. That we still struggle... And that's why these words are so meaningful to us still. Because we still live life with, with animosity and hate. Where we've accepted that if people are a threat to us, either our morality or our safety, that it's okay to not just be bothered by that, but to actually hate. And there's two places that come to mind where I think I see this the most. In, in the public discourse... In the newspaper, on the news, we can hear this language of disgust and hate and, and then through, through the internet, right? I mean, this kind of virtual anonymity where it's okay to say very strong things against people you may have a problem with or against places that bother you or leadership that bothers you. Uh, it was a really interesting, there's several articles and things that have been written about the day when bin Laden uh, was assassinated where there was kind of this bipolar response from the Christian community on Facebook, where there were some Christians that were just celebrating publicly that this man is dead, and then you had other Christians being like pleased that this, this evil person is gone, but the idea of celebrating the death so publicly and so harshly, it was, it was, it was like when I looked at my Facebook feed on that day, I felt like I was, uh, where are we at with this? We have strong language still in our culture. We still have a culture where there's an a, a underlying belief that it's okay sometimes 
to hate people that are different than us, to hate people who have wronged us. And, and as somebody who's worked with students for over 15 years, I want to just appeal to you for a moment to let you know when a culture has this kind of accepted public thought that it's okay to hate people that are different than us and to hate our enemies, what it does to this younger generation. I mean, I could tell you story after story. There was one of our students who, who just went to school a few years ago, shared something he liked from a person who was a, a particular person who was running for, for, a, for government position, and his friend's didn't agree with his political views, and he got physically beat up at school just for expressing what he, someone he liked or something this particular candidate said. He was physically beat up. No conversation that led to physical, just beat up. And I can't tell you, I mean, I just heard another tragic story, a 10-year-old girl, 10-year-old girl who was being virtually kind of harassed so her classmates and were making fun of her on Facebook and posting all kinds of things, and she took her life because of the evil and the cruelty and the accepted that it's okay to hate people that are different than you, that it's okay to have those kinds of feelings towards people. This, this narrative and this value isn't just present in this text. It's also present in our context as well. Jesus is teaching directly against this kind of thinking. The thought that it was okay to hate those who have wronged you or to hate those that are a threat to you, either your morality or your safety, Jesus has much more to say. So when we talk about recognizing the roots, I want us to recognize the roots of this statement. And the root of it is that there's a, a cultural problem. There's a philosophical thought that is not consistent with who Jesus is and a way of living that he wants people to live. And so the root of this whole passage is Jesus calling that out and he's going to reform it. So go with me to verse 44 for our second point where Jesus calls us to go beyond behavior. When he says, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You know, just previously in the message we heard last week in the text right above, we have this section on revenge where we hear things like we're to turn the other cheek or to, uh, if somebody's going to sue us for our shirt, give them our coat as well. If somebody's going to ask you to walk one mile, walk two miles. Jesus is giving us very practical advice on what to do in situations when we're, when we're oppressed, when, when, when something bad is happening to us. It's a behavior. He's giving us practical ideas, not just specific, but also a way of thinking about that when you are sensed that you are wrong, when something is wrong, that you can actually control your behavior to be very different than, than what you want it to be. And I think in verse 44, we have Jesus do what Jesus does all the time, where he takes the conversation up to a whole other level, where he says, this isn't just about behavior. This is about your heart. Jesus takes it from behavior to emotion. This week, Henry, our son, is in, and this poor kid, he's just going to be in sermons the rest of his life. And, and, and he's three years old, He's in the school here, and my wife picked him up on Wednesday. And when I came home from work, she uh, let me know that when she picked him up from school, that he had, he had hit one of his classmates, and, uh, which is so, you know, terrible. And um, really, I am, I'm really disappointed. But he hit this kid that he adores. And so when we started to talk about what we were going to do to address this and continue to address it, I sensed a temptation inside of me 
that it would be so much easier to parent Henry by just saying, don't hit anybody. And that if I could just convince him that hitting is bad and hitting is wrong and he stopped hitting, then we have won as parents. But you and I both know that that that's a very shallow way to look at that situation. Is it true that I want Henry to stop hitting? Absolutely. But we want Henry to know why it is that we don't hit. We want Henry to be connected to a larger value system. We want him to know the words of Jesus and the way of living and the way of sharing. And when you get frustrated, you don't act out. We want to take it beyond just behavior. And I think in verse 44, we have Jesus doing the exact same thing. This isn't just about behavior. This is about our heart. This is about when it comes to those who have wronged us and our enemies, it's not just about training ourselves to tolerate them. It's about coming to a place where our emotions enter in and we can love them. I mean, can you think of anything harder? This is just one verse where Jesus changes the whole conversation and it's incredibly difficult. Because when we start really thinking about our enemies, those that have wronged us, those who have hurt us, those who have abused us, those who have done terrible things to us, and we hear Jesus tell us to love them, that's a confusing place. At least it is for me. And to go to that place of emotion is so painful for so many of us. To remember those that have hurt us, to remember those situations that have brought us down, that have been unjust to us. And, to, and in those places, Jesus calling us to bring all of ourselves into that situation and to love someone else, to love that person, incredibly difficult. Many of us are going to enter some of those emotions this week as we are reunited with family. I mean, that's a happy thought for several of us, but it's probably a mixed thought for most of us, where we'll be reminded of situations. We'll be reminded of the brother or sister that teased us all growing up, or, or we'll be reminded of the distant father that we had, or, or we'll be reminded of the dysfunction in our family, and we're reminded of pain, and we're reminded of all kinds of things. In fact, I prayed with a woman last night after church. She had a very simple request, and she goes, my mother and I have always been enemies. Will you pray for me? Jesus calls us to go to those emotional places. And I'm so thankful, and I wish to you that the rest of this sermon would be, here's the three things you can do to love your enemies, and we could pray, and we can go, and then we'd just love everybody, and it'll be great. I'm, I, I, I can't do that for you, but Jesus does give us something very practical here. A way to know whether we're on the road to loving enemies, a, an evidence to say whether we're, we're doing anything, when he says, that we're to pray for those who persecute us. There's this quote I found this week from John Stott. We'll throw it up. I find great motivation in this when it says, Jesus seems to have prayed for his tormentors actually while the iron spikes were being driven through his hands and feet. Indeed, the imperfect tense suggests that he kept praying, kept repeating his entry. Father, forgive them for they not for they know not what they do. And this is the part that hits home. If the cruel torture of crucifixion could not silence our Lord's prayer for his enemies, what pain, pride, prejudice, or sloth could justify silencing ours? Are you thankful that we have a Lord in Jesus Christ who doesn't just tell us to do stuff that he doesn't demonstrate? 
He doesn't tell us to go pray for your enemies and we have to figure out what that's like. We have an example of what that's like. And I'm so thankful that the example is simple and short. I think those might be the best prayers for us. If I was going to give us a practical peace, I think when it comes to praying for those who have hurt us, those who have wronged us, those who, have, who are our enemies, that it's okay to keep those prayers really short and simple. And I remember in high school, you guys hear the same stories all the time, I'm sorry. It was my senior year, and uh, I went to dance with a, a woman, a girl at the time, and and she didn't go to church with us. I was known as a youth group kid, and I, I didn't go to parties and things like that too often. But there was a group of us, and we were hanging out. And then after the dance was over, we had this very elaborate evening planned afterwards. We were going to go get dessert and do this whole thing. And um, all of a sudden, all of our dates, a few of us, all of our dates started feeling terrible. And we thought it might have been something from dinner. So they asked to just go home, and somebody offered to take them home. And it wasn't until Monday we got to school till we realized that my actual date was hosting the party of the year at her house. But she didn't want me to be offended or to be feel torn, so she thought it might be better just to lie to me and to lie to my buddies while the rest of our class went over to her house till the wee hours of the morning and had a party. And so when I stepped on campus on Monday and heard about this party at uh, Jamie's house, I was hurt and then come to find out that the person whose idea it was to not tell Jeff was my best friend at the time. My best friend. And I remember having to leave school because it was so painful, that feeling. At that time of life, I mean, that was like one of the hardest things I had felt. And I remember mustering up a very short and simple prayer where it was something like, will you just be with Todd, God? Be with him. And and it just repeated and it just repeated. When it comes to praying for those who have hurt us, those are our enemies. We have an example in, in Jesus to keep those prayers short and simple. It doesn't say, love your enemies and go out to lunch with them once a week. It doesn't say, love your enemies and be best friends and move in together and be roommates. I mean, even think about the most tragic of things that we're hearing on the news right now. Some of the most filthy allegations that are out there of of what, what, what sin is like in this world. And it's even against people who live that way that we should be able to muster up a short and simple prayer for them to meet Jesus and for their life to change. This call from Jesus pushes us beyond behavior to an emotional place a place that is difficult, a place that is incredibly hard, and it can feel impossible. But it's important to remember Jesus gives us something practical here and says, just pray. Pray for those who persecute you. And finally, the rest of this scripture, 45 through 48, we find that Jesus is calling us to take on the family identity says that you may be children of your Father in heaven. And, and listen to this juxtaposition that happens. He, God, causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Don't even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore as your heavenly Father is perfect. So look at these, these last verses. There's something that emerges. 
We see uh, what God is like and who God is. When it says that he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends his reign on the righteous and the unrighteous, we find that we have a God who gives his provision to all. That all are created in the image of God. Whether they're good or evil, whether they're righteous or unrighteous, God is going to provide for them. He will provide sun to them. He will provide rain to them. We have a God that gives provision to all. And then we learn a little bit about us. Where it says, we're the kind of people who typically love people who love us. And we're typically people who like to greet people who are our brothers. So we have this incredible juxtaposition where we have a God who sends his provision on all. And then we have us as his people, and we typically like to greet people that are our brothers, and we typically like to be around people that are like us. And to drive that point home even further, Jesus, again, he like goes for the jugular on this. And he says, just, just so you're clear, when you do these things, you're like the tax collectors and the pagans. So when you... Uh, when you love people who love you, by the way, the tax collectors do that. And when you greet people or your brothers, pagans do that. So don't think you're anywhere near this, this, this way of example of God. I mean, those two examples, especially in this context of enemies, is so, so important. Tax collectors, people that have done you wrong, people that have, have messed with you, who have taken advantage of you, those who have stolen from you, When you act like this, you're acting like them. Pagans, those people who disgust you, those people who live so different than you, those people, those those dogs. Jesus uses these non-believing examples to drive the point home that we are not living the way God lives and calls us to. And, And then he finally says this thing about being perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So we find out what God is like, what God does. We find out what we're like and what we do. And then we have a command from God for us to be more like God. When he says be perfect, he means be mature, be whole, strive to be the kind of person that God has called you to be. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jeff Leo, he always makes it into a sermon, it seems like. And he he gave me his commentary on this last verse 48. He said, Take after the father of our family and be recognized as his kids. So we find out who the father is. This is a father who gives his provision and his love to all. We find out that we're not like that, and it's God commanding us for our lives to look more like his. My grandmother passed away a year and a half ago. She lived in a town called uh, Farmington, California, very small town up by Stockton. In fact, half of the cemetery in Farmington says Madisich. It's actually really, really cool, and uh, in a weird way, yeah. I just didn't know I had a big family, yeah. And I went up there to prepare to do this uh, funeral and memorial, and it was a privilege to do so. And as I was reminded of uh, my grandmother, she was notorious um, to, to remind me that I was a Madisich. So, I mean, and I'm, I'm not exaggerating. We'd be at a restaurant. And if I, I remember one time we were at uh, Yolanda's in Ventura. And I ordered Chili Verde. And she looks at me and she just shook her head. She goes, you are such a Madisich. 
And then I blew my nose one time, and she's like, you're such a Mattisich. And it, it, it's mostly centered around food. When I would order a certain drink or, a, or food, she would, re- oh, you, you eat, and then I would eat my plate fast. She'd go, oh, you're such a Mattisich. And then I would walk a certain way, and she goes, you walk like a Mattisich. And, and, she was, and at her memorial, I found out that she told most people they were Mattisiches. So, um, <laughs> but my grandmother, her goal when I was in her presence, she looked for ways to remind me about who I was and where I was from. And she was insistent on it. And I think the same thing is in this command. It's God calling us to be identified as his sons and his daughters. And the way we will be known as that is the way we treat the enemy. All kinds of other ways we'll know. But in this particular scripture this morning, it's, it's Jesus saying, you want to be known as a son, as a daughter of God? Well, then the way you treat those that you can't stand and those that have hurt you and that those that have wronged you, the way you treat them and your ability to love them, your ability to pray for them will tell the world whether you're really my son or daughter if you're taking after the father of the family. And if you're anything like me, that is a humbling thought. Because when I think about my enemies, and I think about those people that have wronged me, or have hurt me, or offended me, my natural reaction isn't to be the kind of person that we find in this scripture. That I'm much more prone towards avoiding. I'm much more prone to not want to deal with it, and to not surface it, and to keep my emotions as far away from that as possible. And yet we have the words of Jesus this morning commanding us to take on the family identity. So all of this for what? I'll tell you the truth. What this has done for me the most in the last couple of weeks has caused me not only to think about my enemies, but to think about my whole life. We talk often in this church, Colossians 1, 28 and 29. Our goal is to become complete in Christ. It's the same idea as this perfect verse we see, to strive, to make our lives look more and more like God. And I am convicted as I read this scripture, even when we talk about the roots thing, that there are probably values and and, and accepted thought that I subscribe to that probably, if I start digging, aren't really found in this book. It causes me to think about the way Jenny and I think about money. And to make sure that the, what we, how we live and what we actually think about money is consistent with the way Jesus tells us to and consistent with the scriptures. It causes, it's causing us to, to, to think a little more deeply about things that we probably haven't thought deeply enough about in a long time. Because at the end of the day, I think really we do live in this place. Maybe we don't use the word hate because that is so loaded, but at the end of the day, we live at a time where it's okay and accepted to think less of people, especially those who are different than us and those who are, who are evil and those who have done terrible things. And I just want my life to be consistent. I want to be a kind of person who is growing and showing progress and who's becoming more and more like Jesus today than I was yesterday. And I want that for all of us as a church. I think that's part of our legacy as a church is that for years... This has been a congregation that has humbled themselves before the Lord, followed his leading in their life, 
So we're going to pray. And the song that we're going to sing at the end is a song that I sing most nights to my son. And I think it captures the heart of this idea of becoming perfect. The idea that we're asking God to build inside of us a new person, a new heart. That he would create in us something new so that we can look more like his son today than we did yesterday. Let me pray for us.